Many of you will know uh, Roald Dahl, author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Fantastic Miss Fox, James and the Giant Peach. Uh, less well-known is his book of autobiographical short stories, just called Boy. And there's one short story in particular that I found very confronting. It's called The Headmaster, and it is uh, set in his time at the prestigious 450-year-old Repton School in Derbyshire. And his headmaster at the time was uh, an Anglican priest and a fierce man. Listen to what he said about one of his friends who endured one of the famous canings from headmaster. Michael was ordered to take down his trousers and kneel on the headmaster's sofa with the top half of his body hanging over one end of the sofa. The great man then gave him one terrific crack. After that, there was a pause. The cane was put down and the headmaster began filling his pipe from a tin of tobacco. He also started to lecture the kneeling boy about sin and wrongdoing. Soon the cane was picked up again and a second tremendous crack was administered upon the trembling buttocks. Then the pipe-filling business and the lecture, this slow and fearsome process went on until ten terrible strokes had been delivered. At the end of it all, a basin, a sponge and a small clean towel were produced by the headmaster and the victim was told to wash away the blood before pulling up his trousers. He was an ordinary clergyman at the time, as well as being the headmaster, and I would sit in the dim light of the school chapel and listen to him preaching about the Lamb of God and mercy and forgiveness and all the rest of it. And my young mind would become totally confused. So what was it all about, I used to ask myself. In Dahl's third year, Headmaster was promoted to be the Bishop of Chester. A few years after that, he was Bishop of London. A few years after that, in 1944, he was appointed top position in the Anglican Church worldwide. This was Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher. Who crowned the Queen? And Dahl says, with half the world watching him on television. Dahl ends with these haunting words. It was all this, I think, that made me begin to have doubts about religion and even about God. If this person, I kept on telling myself, was one of God's chosen salesmen on earth, then there must be something very wrong about the whole business. A brilliant young man, driven to atheism by one of God's chosen salesmen on earth. It is so, so sad. But I just think how many other people today, especially today, have had their image of God blackened or obliterated by the bad behavior of the church, 
by some appalling life experience, by perhaps just personal failure or just the disenchantment of life, leaves us without a God of grace. Tons and tons of things can obscure our image of God. But only one thing can restore it. And it's the central theme of our passage today. In fact, it's pretty much the central theme of John's gospel. And I'm kind of glad it's my final word. Look to Jesus Christ and you will see the God of grace. Look to Jesus Christ and you will see the God of grace. In John's gospel, uh, this profound idea is offered as an answer to two questions, not just one. The existential question, how can we picture God when life treats us harshly? But also the philosophical question, how can we know what the architect of the universe is like when all we have is his handiwork? How could we know? That is actually John's opening line in the whole uh, book of John. So you may remember 18 weeks ago, I mean, I can't really expect you to remember 18 sermons ago, but we expounded this uh, first line where John launches with saying, in the beginning was the word, and he used the word logos, which in the Greek language is the word for the fundamental ordering principle of the universe. And the word, or logos, was with God, and the word was God. And I pointed out in that first talk that the ancients knew all about the logos, the mysterious ordering principle of the universe. I mean, even uh, prehistoric human beings, so far as we can tell from their rock art, looked out at the universe and wondered at the elegance and orderliness of the heavens and wondered who is responsible. And I know in our scientific age, we like to think, well, that's the prehistoric question. It's not relevant now. We know the laws of nature, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's a question that is more pressing now than it ever was because we know what the prehistoric human being never knew, that this elegance and mathematical order is not just in the heavens, but right down into the subatomic particle and the DNA double helix all the way out. It's maths. All the way down, it's maths. It's orderliness, it's elegance. Knowing the laws of nature doesn't do away with the existence of God any more than knowing every word in a book does away with the author. It would be a very strange person who says, I understand every word of the book, therefore no author. I love how uh, Albert Einstein put it. He wasn't a religious man, I hasten to add, but he did often say stuff like this. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. 
The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. Or elsewhere, in a letter to a friend, he wrote, My religiosity consists of a humble admiration of the infinitely superior spirit that reveals itself in the little that we can comprehend about the knowable world. That deeply emotional conviction of the presence of a superior reasoning power, which is revealed in the incomprehensible universe, forms my idea of God. Someone must have written the books, but we don't know who. Some supreme reasoning power lies behind everything, but our puny brains can't get our heads around it. That is the idea contained in the word logos, the absent architect behind the structure of the universe, the unknown mathematician behind the equations, the anonymous author behind the mysterious order of the books in a library. And John's whole point in alluding to this famous concept of the orderliness of nature contained in the word logos, his whole point is to offer the unique Christian answer that follows in his prelude in these words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Here's the point. In the life of Jesus Christ, you see the God of grace in the flesh. That's how we can picture God amidst the harshness of life. That's how we can know the absent architect of the universe. And our passage today is the climax of that theme in John's Gospel. Thanks, Peck. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, 
Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Thanks, Beck. I'm sorry if you didn't hear that up the back. I don't know what's wrong with the mic, but that was beautifully read. I think I could just sit down now. But I'm not going to. It's Jesus' final night. He makes this crystal clear. After three years with his disciples, he tells them plainly in verse three, uh, 30, 33, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. He's talking about going. And then notice he tries to uh, continue the lesson about love that we looked at last week when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He continues, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another, and so on. But the disciples can't hear anything about love. All they hear is, I'm going. What? Now? And so they begin to ask their questions. They pepper him with questions. First Peter, of course Peter, then Thomas, and then Philip. And you can kind of understand uh, their mood. They're thinking, my goodness, he's going. And if you've been saving up your questions, this is the moment you're going to bring them out, right? I mean, just coincidentally, this week I received a beautiful email from one of you in this church saying, I've been meaning to ask you all these questions before you go. And I kid you not, then followed 24 different questions in two broad subcategories with multiple sub-subcategories. I think it's going to be my next book. Anyway, you get the point. One by one, the disciples think, you're going And there's an increasing intensity to the questioning and an increasing profundity to Jesus' answers. Watch how it plays out. First, Peter wants clarity about the destination. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but later you will. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter wants to know the destination, and he's adamant he can handle it. In fact, more than that, he's willing to lay down his life for Jesus. I suspect what's going on in his head is he's from that Jewish zealotry tradition that thinks the Messiah's going off to fight some battle against the forces of darkness. And Peter is basically saying, I'll be your right-hand man. I'll lay down my life with you in the battle that is to come. To which Jesus replies, actually, Peter, you will disown me before this night's out. Three times. And we read about that in chapter 18. By the way, this is another great indicator that the Gospels are historically trustworthy in their historical reporting. Uh, Given how revered Peter and the other apostles uh, were in the decades following Jesus, there is no way these stories of them betraying Jesus are made up. The only way these could have entered into the literature of early Christianity is if the Apostles, including Peter, told these stories of their betrayal themselves as a kind of admission of failing. But more striking than that is the way Jesus says that nonetheless, there's a place for them. Those next lines, uh, chapter 14, 1, forget that it's a new chapter and NIV have put a heading in there. It's just still the same discourse Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now just pause there, because I'm sure they were all troubled at the news that Peter's going to disown Jesus three times. And then Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's beautiful. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Just ponder this, such grace. Despite Peter's denial of Jesus, despite the fact that most of the apostles will flee at the arrest of Jesus, Jesus promises them a place in the eternal kingdom. And some of us tonight need to hear that. You think of your own failings and denials and betrayals of Christ. And you need to hear Christ say, don't let your heart be troubled. There's a place for you. There's a place for you. But that just prompts the next question, actually, from Thomas this time, who asks for clarification about the way. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? It sounds great what you're talking about. How do we know the way? And Jesus' answer is enigmatic, to say the least. Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is such a famous statement. We can miss how strange it is and how important it is. It's Surely strange. Uh, What's the way, Jesus? I am the way. I mean, imagine if you ask me, John, what's the way to this Green Bay, Wisconsin you always talk about? And I said, 
I am the way to Green Bay. It's sort of strange. Jesus says, I am the way. But the importance of it is pretty clear. Jesus is claiming not just to point the way to God, not just to teach the truth of God, not just to hand out the life of God. He's saying he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He doesn't just know this stuff. He embodies this stuff. Which means if you have him, you have it all. I reckon this is one of those moments where some people get really uncomfortable, where they realize that the beautiful teacher Jesus, who said all sorts of lovely things, also said some very confronting things. People like the Jesus who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, also said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so I have to ask, is this the Jesus you have come to trust? Not some imaginary half-Jesus, not some life coach, not some teacher of ethics, but the one who is the truth, the way, the life. Broad-minded humanism is popular and lovely but it isn't the way. Vague theism is intellectually respectable. Just think of Einstein. But it's not the truth. And hard-working religion can be honorable, but there's no life in it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And if that weren't confronting enough, um, Philip then asks, not just for the way to God, but he asks to see God in verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. It's very difficult to know what uh, Philip was imagining because he's a good Jew, right? He's read his Bible. He knows that one day even Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, no way. No one can see me and live. Exodus 33. Philip knew this. So what is he doing? What is he thinking? Asking to see God. I think he's not thinking at all. He's longing. There's an existential tone to his language. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. That's it. That's all I want. Just show me God. It's a plea of the heart, not a Bible study question. Whatever Philip was expecting, I'm sure he wasn't expecting what Jesus said in reply in verse 9. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Wow, that would concentrate the mind, wouldn't it? Do we not even know each other, Philip? 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In my view, this is not just the most remarkable statement in John's Gospel. It is the most extraordinary statement in all sacred literature. I don't know how much of the Upanishads you've read, but there is nothing like this in the Upanishads. Nor in the Tripitaka, certainly not in the Talmud or the Mishnah or the Quran. Jesus alone said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. Jesus not only associated himself with God, he identified himself as God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, I'm well aware that there is a way of minimizing the force. I've had tons of conversations with people, and the way that out of this, if you're looking for a way out, is to say, ah, but maybe Jesus didn't say those elevated sayings about himself. You know, he just taught, you know, the lovey-dovey stuff, and those theologically ambitious disciples in the decades that followed put divine elevated words onto his lips. So he didn't say this. The problem is, for anyone who's interested in like critical thinking about this, is that the evidence Jesus spoke words like this is as good as the evidence we have that he spoke about love. We find this elevated language about himself in multiple ways right across our sources. John 14, 9 may be the most extraordinary of all of them, but the rest of the Gospels also say stuff like, I am greater than the temple. He said that. When everyone knew what the temple was, it was the physical embodiment of God's presence on earth. He went around saying, your sins are forgiven, like it was his to give. And his critics, as you may remember, rightly complain, no one can forgive sins but God alone. Mm Mm-hmm. And on and on we could go. The evidence that Jesus identified himself as God is as good as the evidence that he taught us to love one another. You don't get one without the other or the other without the one. And so I think C.S. Lewis's famous tripartite challenge is still as powerful as ever. You you remember he uh, said that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. And people have criticized C.S. Lewis by saying, oh, he's missing out the option that Jesus never said those divine words about himself. Except C.S. Lewis knew that the evidence that he did is too good. Here's exactly how C.S. Lewis put it in a statement I know I've quoted here before, probably many times, but, you know, I have a license today to do what I like. (laughs) A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Through Jesus' life, teaching, foot washing, death, resurrection, we see the God of grace. We see the God of grace. And friends, that is both a challenge and a comfort. It's a big challenge when you think about it because it means we're not at liberty to cherry-pick our image of God. I wish I had a dollar for every time someone said to me stuff like, I like to think of God as... You might as well say, I like to think of gravity as... And people normally say, I like to think of God as, you know, one who loves us just as we are and says that we're, we're doing fine, pretty much as we are. But cherry-picking, frankly, is just self-flattery, isn't it? I'm just flattering myself because all I'm doing is I'm projecting my preferences onto my vision of the Almighty. God must be like my favorite thoughts. But if seeing Jesus is seeing God, it turns out he has no intention fitting in with our preferences. Just as gravity doesn't. And he certainly doesn't think we're all doing fine just as we are. Jesus' life recounted in the Gospels, that's the standard. That's how far we've fallen. That's why he died for us, to bear our judgment that we might be forgiven. And that's why he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's a challenge, but there's also comfort, beautiful, beautiful comfort, both philosophical and emotional, actually. Because this means that God is nothing other than what we see in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God is nothing other than what we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't God on a good day, which is how some people like to think of it. Jesus is what God is like. In fact, that's not even the right way to put it. He is who God is. The judge of all the earth would rather give his own life than see anyone lost. The great mathematician turns out to be a lover. And think about how this all must have crashed in on the Apostle Peter that night. Spare a thought for him. Before the night is out, he will deny Jesus three times and no doubt overwhelmed with a sense of failure. 
but he'll also no doubt remember, Jesus said I'd fail him. And then his next sentence was a promise to be in the kingdom forever. This is the one who washed my feet. This is the one who proclaimed judgment but then died like he was the Passover lamb. And no doubt Peter, at the end of it all, thought, oh my goodness. He said, if I have seen him, I have seen God. Max Licardo, in his um, wonderful book, classic really, no wonder they call him saviour, tells of a young woman he knew of who was raised outside of Rio in a small town, who had always said to her mum that she longed to go to the bright lights of Rio and experience the party atmosphere of that famous city. And her mum had always said, you mustn't. The only work a young woman like you will find will be the, the most demeaning kind of work. Christina didn't listen, and some time down the track, she had packed her bags and she'd caught a bus into Rio to just explore the city, live the life. Her mum knew exactly what she'd done. When she woke up, she packed her bags and went straight into Rio and looked for her. She didn't find her. Days went by. She didn't find her. But she had this, I think, great idea. She went into the tourist area, into those photo booths where you can get lots of little tourist photos of yourself, and, and she just printed out photo after photo after photo of herself and then wrote a little message to her daughter on the back. And then she walked the streets of Rio and into the sleazy places and just pinned them on the walls, everywhere, in the hope that Christina would one day see it. And it turns out, weeks down the track, Christina had turned to a demeaning kind of life just to make ends meet, too ashamed to go home, unsure what her mum would say. And she's walking down the stairwell of one of these places and she notices the photo of her mum on the wall. I can hardly imagine the emotion. She grabs it, stares at it and notices writing on the back. It said, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please just come home. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please just come home. And Licardo said she did, to a great welcome. And of course, I tell you that apparently true story, because it reminds me of the truth at the heart of John's gospel, the truth at the heart of the Christian faith. God has left an image of himself in the world. It isn't the church. It isn't an archbishop. It isn't a rector. There's one reliable image that won't let you down. It's the life, teaching, foot washing, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
That's the image of God. And a similar message is attached, of course. Please just come home. Just come home. And I hasten to add that this is not just a theme for wanderers. It's actually the central theme of the Christian faith. This is an idea you never go beyond. Look to Jesus Christ and you will see the God of grace. Through your sufferings, through your joys, through your disenchantment, through the weariness, look to Jesus Christ and you will see the God of grace. This is how we know we're safe with God. This is how we know how to live for God. This is how we stay on message. This is the message I've preached for nine years here. And so I'm really glad they are my final words to you. Look to Jesus Christ and you will see the God of grace.